0: Hello again on the Ed Lowe podcast. Hello, Liz Enton.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: <laughs> I'm great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, this is another uh, interesting one for me. We've done quite a few um, religious podcasts, near death experience podcasts. I've talked to somebody who claims uh, someone who's an expert in near death experiences, another person who claims they went to heaven, someone who claims they went to hell. Um, and now I have um, someone who is a logical atheist but also believes in afterlife is that right
1: that's correct well i never use the word believe i will say i think there's a preponderance of evidence that would make me conclude an afterlife is a reasonable probability
0: well you are speaking my language because i'm an attorney and that's what i deal with evidence (laughs) preponderances of evidence and reasonable probability you should have gone to law school um,
1: I've
0: thought about it. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, we could talk about that too. Um, all the reasons to and not. And speaking yeah. of which, another thing that I find very interesting about you is you've had um, some experience in a courtroom because you were a perceiving witness uh, in the Harvey Weinstein case. Right?
1: Correct. Yes. Man. Yes.
0: Well, let, let's start. Yes. Let's start there because that's really to me as an attorney that's really interesting. What What was your um, What was kind of your connection to the case?
1: So I was a secondary witness, which means I verified the testimony of one of the accusers. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends who'd been a roommate for a summer was one of the accusers. And Mm -hmm. I was called in to verify her story. And it kind of ended up going pretty viral because, first of all, at one point, um, he had pretty much broken into our apartment or shoved his way in I was not there that day but I have a little chihuahua mix who Mm. chased him around and he got really (laughs) frightened of my 12 pound chihuahua so that came up in the testimony and everyone thought that was pretty entertaining and then also for lack of I don't want to sound bragging but I kind of Tore into his lawyer, and that ended up
0: going viral. So. Oh well, that's awesome. Well, yeah, because yes. I haven't, I haven't seen it, and uh, um, so, so tell me when you say you tore into him, what did he do Her. to make you want to turn Because here's the thing: I'm a trial attorney, right? And I know right. how hard it is, like, to be there in front of a jury, and you have to treat each witness differently depending on how they are responding. I've never done a case like a Harvey Weinstein case. Actually, I know, I know one of the attorneys who was very integral in that, but,
1: Oh, which but, attorney um, do you know? Are you allowed
0: um, to say I'm, I'm not, but, um, okay. but uh, the thing that's interesting about it is, is, um, uh, that, that, uh, if you, if you go the wrong way, you can really get, or you can really screw up, um, you know, screw up your whole case really. So, so tell me okay. exactly what it is that the defense attorney, um, did that made you kind of go off on him.
1: I was a her.
0: Um, I mean she didn't
1: do anything wrong. She was defending her client as she should. I mean everyone from the serial killers to serial rapists to you know Mm -hmm. the average shoplifter. Not saying shoplifting's Mm -hmm. okay, but I certainly have empathy of someone struggling financially who might turn to shoplifting. Every single person deserves an attorney who fights for them. So I don't think she did anything wrong, but I was going to defend my friends. So she was, and I was going to fight for the truth and mm-hmm. share the story. And I guess she kept trying to say things such as, well, allegedly. And I was like, no, not allegedly.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, she was doing her job and she was trying to, you know, make my words fit her narrative and i
0: just wasn't wasn't... having it yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: (laughs) man so your 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 um your roommate was one of his uh, Mm -hmm. accusers one of his victims and so is it was it a situation where she had come home and kind of told you that this had occurred or was it strictly because he broke into the apartment and you were a witness to that occurring
1: Um, just heads up I'm going to have to probably and you probably know this be a little careful everything Mm -hmm. I say because I don't know to what extent they're appealing Um, Mm -hmm. but I think it should be I I trust that you know it's okay to say all this I guess yeah yeah, she told me the Mm. story so Mm.
0: and then I
1: corroborated her story these years later saying this is what she told me and I shared exactly what she told me
0: Right. And so that's that's in a lot of these cases, because we know that in in particularly in sexual trauma cases like that, Mm -hmm. uh, sexual assault cases that very often uh, the, uh, the victim doesn't come forward for a long, long, long period of time. And so whenever that happens, there's a question of why didn't you come forward before? And so having a witness like you who can corroborate, yeah, she was telling me back then that this happened is so integral to those cases. So you played a huge role.
1: thank you yeah yeah (laughs) and you know i mean yeah um again i always have to be a little careful i'm like i just want to start saying all this stuff but
0: you know obviously no i understand you're you're kind of guarded and i get that (laughs) but um it's interesting to hear um that uh you know there's you say you're a secondary witness but i just wanted to emphasize that even a secondary witness is so critical to those types of cases for that very reason, because it's very often the defense. Well, if it really happened, she would have said something beforehand and she's just coming in because there are all these other accusers, especially someone like Harvey Weinstein is very powerful and, you know, he's a big name in Hollywood. There's always the, Oh, this is just a money grab. This is just for fame. So having someone like you is so important to show that this is not something that just, you know, had that type of, uh that had that, that type of spin on it so that's awesome uh Thank gotta say you. it's yeah. it's scary i'm sure it's scary i know i have a lot of witnesses who come in and testify for me it's it's not a fun experience for most people it's scary um
1: I, am i allowed to say i really enjoyed it um, you're allowed to say whatever you want okay. yeah. i mean yeah a i thought it was it was obviously scary for a moment, but I actually found it really, really enjoyable. It felt like getting to, like, use your knowledge with awareness of the experience to fight for social justice and be heard and help my friend be heard. And so I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed, like, the pace of having to think on your feet in the moment, because... Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I knew exactly what happened and someone's coming at me so fast trying to spin things. Yeah. And I enjoyed the strategy of that, if that mm. makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing that uh, what you're trying to say there is, you know, it's funny because attorneys, they're, they're always strategic. Their mm-hmm. questioning is strategic. I know that when I mm-hmm. question witnesses, I know you know, like one of the cardinal rules when you're cross-examining someone is you never ask a question you don't know the answer to, right? And so you're always asking questions in a specific way to elicit the kind of story that you're wanting to portray to the jury. And as a witness who has information and catches an attorney who's maybe doing that for, you know, yes, defending their witness, but, or defending their, their client, but their client is very guilty <laughs> yes. you know um, yes. you know you you definitely have to make sure that attorneys don't put words in your mouth which good mm-hmm. ones can do so
1: right so I enjoyed that I enjoyed like kind of instantaneously on the go trying to figure out her strategy I mean it all was coming very fast and it was very kind of lost myself in it and sort of the feeling I guess it was like constantly every question I knew was coming out of strategy so what was the strategy behind that and i just moving at that pace with mm-hmm. like a cause i care about something i knew i was true i knew i had the truth on my side i'm assuming his defense attorneys i, I can't say i know this for a fact so allegedly his attorneys knew he was guilty mm-hmm. i'm most likely guessing but again just because he's guilty doesn't mean he doesn't deserve representation Right. That being said, like yeah, I enjoyed having a strategy right there. I enjoyed the pace. It was almost like a game of wits too at mm-hmm. the moment, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I with a cause I believed in. So yeah. I, I guess I don't want to say a cause that sounds like a big picture cause, but within this well, moment, knowing his well, guilt.
0: It, but it is it is a cause you believe in because you you believed your friend because you know your friend, your, your friend was uh, assaulted, was a victim. So yeah um you you clearly wanted to help your friend but you know the the thing that you, i think you're trying to portray is is that it was you had to be on your toes and alert because you know like i said a good defense attorney a good any attorney can put words in your mouth and and make you make out what you're saying is different than what you're really trying to say and so um so that's that's great and also you're right you know criminal defense attorneys are in a really weird position because you know the, uh, yes you even if you do know your your client is guilty he still has a constitutional rights and you want to make sure that the state proves its case and they they didn't at least the jurors thought they did in harvey weinstein's case and so i personally hope he spends the rest of his life in prison and so because uh, that's pretty horrific what he was doing yeah
1: oh so. it's terrible and i hope so too and it was something i'd known for years and oh, yeah, so it felt very freeing to get her story out mm-hmm. there as well, and to see my friend mm-hmm. and finding out how many other women at the same time getting yeah. justice and with someone who's so, with such an inordinate level of power, right. and you don't often get to see someone with that level of power be held accountable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you you played a role in that, so that's well, that's thank awesome. Thank you. Thank so- you. No, I'm just curious if
1: you don't mind me asking you one thing yourself. Um, if that's okay. Are you yeah. defense or prosecuting attorney? I'm
0: or? I'm actually a personal injury attorney on the plaintiff's oh, side. So I represent people nice. who've been in car accidents and um, you know, slip and falls premises liability cases, um, you know, products liability cases. Um, so it's a civil civil cases, but on the plaintiff's okay. side, similar to a prosecutor. So oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And even and even the civil attorneys, the defense attorneys, as much as I hate the insurance companies, they're entitled to refer- representation too, and so. Um, but uh, but yeah, but they're 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 pretty terrible too. So <laughs> anyway, um, so now let's talk about you a little bit, your background. Where did you grow up? Tell me about your family.
1: Sure. So I grew up in New York City in Manhattan. Um, I, I'm an only child two parents, it was pretty much the three of us. And that's, that's my family. That's how I grew up.
0: Yeah. Now. um, So were your parents, you know, you're a logical atheist, but were your parents particularly religious or not?
1: Not religious. Um, I think so my dad was Jewish, my mom's Hmm. Protestant, but so we were pretty culturally Jewish and the culture I grew up in was pretty Jewish but not religious Jewish, very secular Jewish. And Mm. yeah, my parents were very secular. Everyone I was around was secular. So Mm. I think there's often a mis, not a misconception, because I think the majority of people who identify as atheists are people. It's usually considered something someone arrived at through a bit Mm. of a backlash against religion. And it wasn't like that. It was just the default. Like it never even crossed my mind. Mm. there was a God. And in my culture, I really know, I don't think I ever met anyone who really believed in God in any real way. It was just sort of felt like a cultural reference. Like you would go to, again, I grew up in a pretty Jewish culture. So I'd go to a lot of bar and bar mitzvahs and you know, there'd be prayers mentioning God or on the holidays we would, but it just felt like a kind of reference to history rather than anything, anyone I knew believed.
0: Mm. Did your, uh, your dad, uh, it's interesting because my, my dad, also Jewish converted to Mormon. Um, um, and uh, so that that was I have Jewish family. Um, and, and I think that they're more secular, too. But did he follow all of like the dietary laws or anything like that? Or was it more just oh, no, no, not no, no. at all? It was right.
1: just like the humor. Like we liked I, we didn't follow dietary laws, but we liked some of the food like we would have like right. with box and cream cheese. <laughs> I mean, not kosher, just we like, right. you know, celebrated the holidays with the fun parts we never fasted on yom kippur but we would do like passover cedars celebrate hanukkah and Mm. it was just you know i mean the jewish holidays or christmas from my mom's side fell in the line with all the holidays we celebrated growing up Mm. like halloween Mm. you know religious holidays didn't mean anything different than any other holidays growing up
0: my dad so my my dad lived with his grandparents who were Christian and he and his, you know, his brother and sister were Jewish. And so his parents, his grandparents got a Christmas tree, but would tell them it was a Hanukkah bush. and So they they were like, so they, they would go, they didn't have a lot of Jewish friends in their area. They, They grew up in kind of a more of an urban area, but when they did have Jewish friends, they'd always ask them where the Hanukkah bush is. And they had no idea that that wasn't even really a thing. And so, until much later. So it was funny because when my parents got together, uh, my dad had no problem with celebrating Christmas or any of that stuff just because like he just always did, you know. And so um, now as far as your uh, upbringing goes, was there ever any discussion of religion or God or any of that? Or you mentioned like it was kind of something that just you just always kind of defaulted to atheism. But were there any conversations about that?
1: Honestly. Especially. I mean, again, religion was more just a culture. I mean, when I was very little, my parents explained death and they were like, oh, you go to heaven and sit on a cloud. And I mean, they explained like the most cliche version of heaven to a very small child. And as I got older, that became clear to me that was like a fable, like the tooth fairy and everything Mm. else. So, and we just didn't talk about it once in a while. I'd be like, I wonder what happens when you die. But you know, essentially remember I was a little older and I had said something about reincarnation. My mom, my mom's like, yeah, that would be nice if it was true. That seems to be a bit of a myth or a bit Mm. of a, you know, fantasy. It was just clear. I mean, that there was just no reason to believe in that stuff. But again, it was so irrelevant in my culture. No one really talked about God. I mean, a little bit in school, but more in terms of, philosophy, like when by the time I was a senior in high school, I was taking like this integrated philosophy type class. And they talked about religion some there, but in terms of philosophy, not in terms of expecting anyone to believe it, or mm-hmm. I was just no one really thought to believe it, I guess. And remember, like, I think in ninth grade or something, we learned a few stories from the Bible in one of my classes and learned about how they were symbolic of humanity. But yeah, I, I there wasn't really anywhere I went that told me this mm-hmm. stuff was real
0: it's interesting because it seems to me you know i've i've run into some uh some atheists who mm-hmm. are very kind of almost argumentative about it uh, and and uh you know like they know i'm particularly religious and so they always want to kind of debate me you know but it seems to me you're you're a little bit more just kind of like well i just never have believed and if you believe fine but i'm not i'm not necessarily a believer like a little more You seem a little more uh, open to all of these ideas. Uh, Have you always been like that? Yeah.
1: I mean, I never really cared if someone was religious. I never thought it was a big deal. Like I didn't, if I ever met someone, I was just like, okay. I mean, I started meeting a lot more religious people in college. I went to college in Austin, Texas, and I was just like, Okay. Like, I mean, I just, how would it affect my life? The only time I think religion, I've had problems with it is if somebody's like, this is my religion. Now I am passing a law that you should live by my personal religious beliefs. That's where I have a problem. Otherwise... I mean, I just found it disrespectful to ever argue with someone about it. Like, why would I care? And I was just like, oh, interesting. They believe that. And I actually thought it probably seemed nicer than thinking when you die, you die. So why would I want to Mm -hmm. take that away from somebody or have them not think that? And I didn't really, the religious people I knew overall, a couple I knew were kind of like in more what I would call, you know, maybe grew up like what would be religious trauma like i think a lot of the atheists that are very argumentative from what i have seen are the ones that are the skeptics that won't even look at the evidence of an afterlife and seem angry that i'm studying it they seem to have a form of religious trauma and i met a couple people like that which is you know it seems in my opinion like the religious trauma is when they try to like a lot of like sexuality shaming especially if you happen to not be straight but also like it seems like especially against women Mm -hmm. also even heterosexual women like wanting to control women's fertility like all that stuff is i don't think so okay and that's where i've seen people have the backlash but if people are just like i believe in god or to each the you know so it's it's a very much each their own i just can't to say i know or that how the whole creation of the universe works and I know it for a fact and everyone else has to be wrong or to care that someone might interpret that differently. Again, as long as you're not passing laws, like why would anyone care? That's what I don't understand. Mm -hmm. That's where I get a little Mm
0: like, why? So, so would you, would you, you categorize yourself as an atheist as opposed to agnostic? Is that because like an agnostic person acknowledges there might be a God, but just doesn't know it? whereas an atheist doesn't believe in God at all, you fall more on the atheist side?
1: I think so in the sense, and I guess maybe it comes down to how do you define a God, but anything of like the Judeo-Christian, biblical, Torah, God, just, I mean, that's why I'm an atheist. Like, I I believe uh, it just, maybe the correct word's evidentialist, and I have Mm -hmm. yet to see any evidence of a definition of God. Mm. And even though I've Mm -hmm. seen lots of evidence of survival of consciousness, but Mm -hmm. to say, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, yeah, I guess I just, I don't think there's a God. That's what I'm at at this point. Cause Mm -hmm. I have been times I've in this research heard people use other completely non religious definitions of God that I'm like, yeah, that could exist. Mm -hmm. But anything Mm -hmm. once, if you're using atheism and God, Atheism, as you don't believe in a biblical god, I don't, mm-hmm. I can't see of all the explanations I found for evidence of an afterlife versus no afterlife versus everything. The one I consider the least likely are the ones based on gods and religion, going back in history to Zeus and you know, I mm. Athena, all the way to the you know, Judeo Christian god that some people talk about today. That, that's just to me the least likely explanation of every explanation every Hmm. possible theory out there but
0: so so a couple questions on that first i find it one of the things i found really interesting when speaking with um you know like um experts on this what i found really interesting is that people tend who've had near-death experiences tend to describe seeing god but like in their own culture so you know, if if you're Muslim and you have a near-death experience, you describe it as Allah. If you're Christian, you describe it as Jesus. And what I, you know, what I've heard from that is, well, that's just because there's no word to describe what they're seeing, and they're just using their own words. But does that? Is you're shaking your head as if you've seen that evidence yourself. If you see that evidence, does that evidence to anything that there might be some godlike form, even though it may not conform to say a. Judeo Christian or a Muslim type, does that suggest any sort of creator entity to you?
1: Possibly. I just mm. actually got back from the IANS conference, which is the International Association mm. of Near Death Studies. And a lot of people said that when I asked them about it, it was like, you know, well, I'm not religious. I mean, when I hear the word God, and now I have like more of a negative reaction than when I used to, because mm. now that I'm studying afterlife evidence, And then if someone gives an evidential story and then uses the word God, I have a really hard time. It makes me think, oh, God, this is all fantasy. And Mm -hmm. like, we're really all going to die when we die. So that's where my emotional reaction comes to it. So if I take away my emotional reaction, I go to pure logic.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Could there be a form of consciousness that's non-physical that created the universe? And yeah, definitely. Now, Mm -hmm. would it necessarily... Could it be, is it something we can't understand? Most likely, could it have a loving component? It seems to. That seems to be what I hear from the near-death experiencers. And any time I've heard the word God used, I've never heard it used in something that would align with that. So I think it makes sense that people's cultural references, like, for example, I had fascinating man on my podcast, Dr. Melvin Morse, who Mm. was a pediatrician with kids in the ER. So a few had had, you know, obviously, not every story ends up happy. There's an average pediatrician, but some of the children did have also near death experiences. And this was one that I think sums it up the most a little boy. Now he's an adult says he saw Jesus during his near death experience, I believe he's an adult. At first, in his childhood near death experience, he said he saw a wizard. And Mm. now then, like a year later, he's like, I saw Jesus. So in his culture, he probably described this wonderful, amazing man that maybe from someone else might say he's a spirit guide, little child said was a wizard. And in his culture, they were probably like, Oh, wow, you saw Jesus. Mm. So that's how it was defined. And the people also have near-death near-death experiences also as you touched upon say they we don't have the vocabulary for this stuff in our culture in our world so because it's another dimension so i think god is the best word that some people have for this and Mm. could it be a consciousness that created all this i doubt it's one single consciousness and i doubt it has the qualities i mean the I want to be very respectful of anyone religious. So this is sure. I hope this isn't offensive, but the biblical secular interpretation of God that I hear is doesn't seem like a very worship worthy consciousness it's like a little petty. it's really into like who people sleep with it's really like <laughs> you know has problems with a lot of things that seem like i mean some of them you hear you should dress this way i mean just things that are so shallow that i already feel i'm above and i don't consider myself a especially highly evolved person so
0: right <laughs> that's
1: i can't believe so whatever being it is is not concerned about like if two men fall
0: in love or, you know. Well, I think, you know, as somebody who I would say deals in logic, but is also religious, Mm -hmm. I think that the thing that if I were to respond to that as somebody who does believe in the Judeo-Christian God Mm -hmm. form of consciousness (laughs) i would say what we have to remember is if we believe like the idea of god go- going through prophets right which is what mm-hmm. the, all the people who write write the, write the books god is using imperfect vessels to write these books that have been changed over time and it does appear that god the god of the old testament and the god of the new testament seem to have very different views on humanity and how they should i mean the old testament is filled with All sorts of sorts of stories of really terrible wars and killing people, and you know, depending on who they are, people get stoned to death and things of that nature. And then, you know, the New Testament God is more about love and unity and all that stuff. But I think that when you're looking at God and how people are describing Him, just as the cultural the people are describing God in their own cultural way now, when they have a near death experience prophets are doing their best in their imperfect way within their culture to interpret the experiences they're having with God. So some of the stuff that comes through, it's not pure like it would be if you were actually visiting God yourself. Now, the thing is, is that could very well be me trying to square logically my own weird biases of wanting to accept that maybe there's something out there that this isn't just all, like this isn't it, right? And I'm trying to I'm, I acknowledge that what I could be doing is trying to logically square something that doesn't make a lot of logical sense, but that's kind of how I've come along with it. You know, it is because I've had those questions, right. I've had those questions myself. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I guess I so rarely have heard the word God used to describe a consciousness that I don't. Consider somewhat petty, but I, you know, but I guess the near-death experience. A lot of the people use the word God, but again, when I ask them, probe a little further, they just say they don't know a better word, and they're just like, "That's the word." And I feel like the same thing they're describing. I would probably use two completely different words. Like, let's take you and me right now. If we let's say we have the exact same near-death experience or out-of-body experience, and we see like we feel like radiating pulsating love coming from like a light in front of us you might come back and say wow i had i saw like a small piece of god and god's love or i saw an angel i would come back and say i, I don't want to put words in your mouth so i apologize sure. if i am i'm just saying oh this no like, oh, I, I know
0: I, I understand it i understand it's just an and, example
1: yeah yeah and I would come back and say, I saw this light, I can't explain what the source is or what it means. And I felt a pulsating kind of energy going through me and it felt like love and I feel like it has a consciousness and I would just never use the word God. But you and I might be talking about the same things that I would never use the word angel. So maybe it's a language for higher beings of consciousness. And from my perspective, organized religion, and i'm just thinking this now this isn't something i've thought about because i stay you know that's just organized religion is not part of my life but maybe it's yeah hijacked and completely misinterpreted because it's just the judeo-christian god doesn't really seem worthy of worship with all due respect from what i've heard directly in the bible or torah not the experiences Mm -hmm. of religious people who might experience it completely differently than me so again i don't I really never yeah. want to disrespect
0: someone's religion. Well, and I don't think I got to tell you I I think that a conversation like this is refreshing. So you're not in, you're not disrespecting me. And if anybody's listening, oh. feeling disrespected, I think that this is a, a healthy conversation to have. I wish there were more like this. And instead of no no no, I'm right and you're wrong and you're you know I, I think this is great. That I I think my uh you know I, I want to explore a little bit more what you mean by you don't think that the judeo-christian god is uh, worship worthy and you mentioned petty can you give me a little bit more about what it is that you think is not worship worthy about the judeo-christian god
1: yes and i will preface this by saying i have never read the bible or torah like sure. i have heard tiny bits so i am prefacing this by what i hear from other people who define themselves as religious Got it. so mm-hmm. um i i they're homophobic they think people shouldn't have like who's this obsessed with sex i don't know anyone who cares who other people sleep with that that's not their like husband or wife mm-hmm. like it's so weird it's like they're i you know i don't know anyone who hasn't had sex before they're married i think that's a healthy thing to do if you choose otherwise i don't care but the people who do that don't usually say, I'm personally waiting for marriage. They're like, all of you are terrible people for doing otherwise. They will tell women they're sluts. They not only say they are without a doubt, know factually despite no science that consciousness is created at the moment of conception, which makes no scientific sense. You can believe that all you want. Great. But then you go and try to pass laws that I have to live by, even though, There are zero peer-reviewed studies on the most complicated question there is, the moment of when a full consciousness with physical sensations and ability to perceive and feel pain is, you know, exists. That is one of the hardest questions in all of the universe, and they know it for a fact, to the point where they're passing laws, not just saying, I totally feel this in my body and know this, so I'm going to live this way. It gets to the point where they'll say... Like, don't wear that outfit because you're attracting, like, sexual lust. I mean, and this is the stuff I have heard. I am sure there are plenty of people who have, like, a beautiful relationship with what they define as a god that don't abide by everything I just said. But, you know, again, I also have a lot of gay friends. My original, like, career was in fashion. I've always had tons of gay friends. Like, telling them they're going to go to hell, telling someone they can't adjust their physical body to match the gender they personally feel they are. I mean, that's just stuff that's cruel. And why would you care? Why would you not like care that just want other people to be happy and feel love and be themselves and like be really kind to people? Like to me being kind is one of the most important things. So that is my, maybe completely ignorant understanding of religion from only having heard it from people who are very religious that I have met or have read about. So So I
0: I will respond in this way. And I appreciate you saying what you did. I really do. Mm -hmm. Because I think similarly to people seeing the very outspoken atheists who want to argue might typecast all atheists, including yourself, like that, I think that you're you're what you're hearing are the most outspoken religious people, who are who are um, type cat which result in typecasting or stereotyping all religious people. Because I can tell you that, at least anecdotally, the people I know who are there are some of those people. There are some of those people who are very what I would call in the box thinkers. If it doesn't fit in the box, then it's it, then it has to it's cast out. Right. Like for example, you brought up the LGBT. Uh, Q community. I also have a lot of friends who are LGBTQ, and um, I've actually interviewed some uh, some people who are Mormon. Uh, one who's a Mormon transgendered person, and uh, one who's a, a gay person who's Mormon. Which you know, if you know anything about the the uh, Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints, that is very very rare. <laughs> and uh, um, but what I, what I would say is is that I think that as uh, one one of the the Interesting and peculiar parts of, of the faith that I have is we believe that the canon is open, meaning that this idea of revelation didn't just stop at the end of the Bible. So as we progress as a people, God will talk to people, uh, and continue to talk to them. And so because of that, I think as we learn more and we learn more about the particularly when it comes to the LGBTQ community, that I think that that will change. I think that there there is a chance that uh, I, I believe God loves everybody, including gay people, trans people. And when it comes to the judgment, which it sounds like what you're saying is like they're saying, oh, well, they are these gay people, so they're going to go to hell. I don't think that that's accurate at all. I think that I think that if you read the Bible, it says that God is a perfect judge, which means that he judges the heart. So if there's something like let's say that it is God's commandment that you're not supposed to be gay. Right. Let's say that is. But he put something in you that you are. That doesn't seem very fair. So I think that God would be a pretty a, a pretty jacked up judge if he sends them to hell when he put that into them and, and, and made them that way. Right. So I think that God is luckily we're not the ones who have to judge. And the problem that you're seeing is that these people who you're talking about are judging when they're not supposed to. I mean, the, my most my favorite part of the Bible, my favorite story in the Bible. Is the woman caught in adultery? Have you heard that story? Do you know that story? No. The woman caught in adultery. Nope. Okay, I'll, I'll share it with you. So, yeah. Jesus is Jesus is preaching uh somewhere, you know, in, near Jerusalem, and uh, as he's preaching, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the the rulers, kind of the guys who are the rule makers of the Jewish religion, they bring a woman who was caught in adultery. Okay, and they come to him and they say, Master, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. He said, "Now the losses were supposed to stone her to death, right? What do you think we should do?" And he looks at them and he says, "That he is without sin, cast the first stone at her, right?" Oh,
1: I've heard that line. Who right. is without sin, cast right. the first stone? I didn't know the story behind it. What, okay, are right, those right. who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones or something? Or-
0: right, exactly. So my point is, is that every the end of the story is, is everybody left because they started remembering their own sins and left, and the woman came to him and she, he said where are thine accusers and they, she says they've all left and he says well or she said he's uh she said none condemn me and he said well i also don't condemn you go th- go thy way and sin no more right so i'm gonna so,
1: i have to add one oh i'm sorry i should let you finish oh <laughs> you I, was I was just gonna a, say i was just
0: I, <laughs> I was just gonna say the the point of that is is that jesus is sitting there if we're if we are supposed to be christian Jesus is sitting there and looking at a woman who clearly broke God's law and and showing love to her anyway. And he's the judge. So if that's the case, I think these people that you're seeing are not truly doing what a Christian should do. Okay. so anyway, what were you going to say?
1: I was gonna say, and that is a what you said is a much more loving. But he is without sin. Why is having sex not married a sin? That's insane. I'm sorry. Well, that's well, no, that's that, asinine. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, no, no, no. With I, all I, due respect,
0: it, it wasn't. It wasn't just having sex. It was adultery. So she was married and was having an affair. So okay. a little bit different. A little okay. bit different. But okay. still, you that's know. But not
1: kind. I. Right. That's not, right. Uh, I would not be okay. You know.
0: Right. So so my my point is though is that is that uh, you're right. Like some of these things don't make a some of them sometimes don't maybe make sense. But my point is, is that even if they are true, God is a loving God. And, and I think that people who are out there and calling people bad names or looking at the woman who's going in, you know, the 16 year old girl who's walking into an abortion clinic, trying to make the most difficult decision in her life and calling her a murderer. I just don't think that that is necessarily this is just me speaking. This is the gospel according to Josh Edlow. I just don't think that that is really the way we should go about it. I don't think that that's very Christian, but that's just me. So, but I'm trying, what I'm trying to share with you is that not all Christians are the way that, you know, that, that you've, you've, you've shared them, but I want to go back to you though, before we go back into that, because we talked a lot about that. So how did you go from being an atheist believing, I'm assuming, but I'm assuming at some point you didn't believe in any afterlife How did you then graduate to now you do believe in an afterlife?
1: Again, I think there's a preponderance of evidence of an afterlife. I'm not convinced. Yes. (laughs) It's a big thing. I make sure I declare if I don't believe anything. Um, Oh, boy. (laughs) I have 20 hours. Um, There (laughs) is so much evidence. To think that the source of our consciousness is stored in non-local type of quantum particle for lack of a better word has mm-hmm. nothing to do with the God first of all so the very first thing I found was it was kind of a thought of desperation and like the depths of my grief when my, it was clear my dad was not going to make it mm-hmm. and I thought about a few things first like I guess the very, very first thought I had was time travel. You know, it wasn't logical, but you know, in the depths of like non-functioning not able to even stand up grief, I thought so much of science fiction comes true. So is there any possibility of time travel, which sent me down path of reading a lot about quantum entanglement, Einstein's theory of time relativity. And I was like, okay, well, if time is not this fact, Were experience like that we're trapped in that it's a lot more mutable and changeable what else that we perceive is different and and to find out that their time travel really is possible it's not practical you can't sit and do it we can't physically build a machine to travel faster than the speed of light or even close to the speed of light but the fact that there's theoretical possibilities to alter time just really opened my mind. And so the very first thought I had that led me down, oh my God, there's probably an afterlife, or t- at this point of drop in a bucket of possibility, was m- I thought, okay, so let's say, and I don't think this anymore, but that the neurons of our brain create an experience of consciousness. And you know, when they turn off, that's it. Now this happened once for me. I'm me but why could another set of firing neurons in say 200 years create another me? Not Liz, not the same person, but at least the experience of a me getting to be in a person. I don't get to experience being you. If I'm not here, you're conscious that I'm not. But in 200 years, I could just a set of neurons could create another human that would it be a me that I could have consciousness. And so I Googled that and I found Doctors Jim Tucker and his mentor, who has since passed away, Ian Stevenson. They are—I'm just going to use the present tense for both them because it's easier than saying are were—but mm-hmm. they are child psychiatrists at the University of Virginia and professors of psychiatry, as well as having private practices they study cases of kids with past life memories. And there's a whole division at the University of Virginia that studies this as well as afterlife research in general. And these child psychiatrists would go find cases of kids with past life memories and go verify them. And there were some cases that were completely verified. And again, this was not, they weren't nothing spiritual. They weren't talking about reincarnation and karma. It was just so backed and data driven. And it it just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away.
0: So what you're saying is there were kids who could remember a past life and they could go and verify that what they remember from the life actually happened.
1: Yes. Yes. Which is just the most mind blowing thing. The strongest cases. I mean, there's so many strong cases, but the one that apparently absolutely blew Dr. Tucker away to the point where he's like, Okay, there. this has got to be real. Um, It's the James Leininger case. It's written about in a lot of places, including Jim Tucker's, Dr. Jim Tucker's books. It's in the Netflix Surviving Death series, but to give a tiny, tiny shortened, condensed version of a very in-depth story, a young boy started, he was under five years old. They take cases only of children under five years old. I mean, there might be an like, outlier or two, but in general, that's they won't mm-hmm. take older because you can't prove the kid didn't hear the information somewhere and believe sure. that, you know. So, this mm-hmm. little boy is like having from horrible nightmares. He had these toy airplanes, and every day he's like playing plane crashes and screaming, Plane on fire, little man can't get out. And finally, the parents end up calling in Jim Tucker. And he notices the kid is trauma playing the way a child would if they had actually witnessed a trauma in this life. This wasn't a game. and It was really, kid was in horror. And then all this research, the kid knows all this stuff about airplanes that are just inexplicable, like very outlier, unique, I guess obscure is the word, not outlier, obscure facts about some obscure planes that were used in World War II. He knows facts about these World War II fighter jets. He, go, he knows facts about World War II. He goes to a World War II mu- air museum or airplane museum and knows all these details. He said something was wrong about the naming of one of the planes. I mean, I might have that wrong. Hmm. He then has these little like army dolls or and one had like blonde hair, one black hair, one red hair, and he gave them each a name. So after loads and loads of research, they trace a man who matched everything this little James had said and find out everything. He died. He'd been a World War II fighter pilot. He died like um, there. They end up tracing back to his army buddies who now are like white haired elderly men. He meets them, this child, and they share memories. The men, when they'd had Their hair, their certain colors, or maybe they were men who'd passed away. I don't know. But nevertheless, the doll's hair color matched up with men and men who'd been in his um, Air Force troop who had that color hair. And he'd given them corresponding names. And he met his sister, now an elderly woman. She was like, he knows stuff about our family. And this is one of many cases. This might be the strongest, but there are quite a few very strong cases.
0: that Along those lines. So so almost... uh, case for some form of reincarnation so, yeah interesting.
1: yeah and it's wow. this is one of many cases and then there's weird consistencies like I start following blogs and so many parents would be posting things like this is so crazy my kid just kept saying when i was big and would share a memory and that's not strong enough to go bring in like jim tucker but nevertheless mm-hmm. it's this consistency kids across the board say things like until a certain age like when i was big and just, mm-hmm. it's just, I mean, that's anecdotal, but there's just yeah. piles of that. And right. it just blew me away.
0: So now as you start, do you do you sometimes question yourself? If, you know, similar to me, like sometimes I, I said, it, I go, now this could be very much me trying to just confirm my own already preconceived notions of what, you know, God and all these things are are like do you sometimes question yourself as maybe some of the things that you are filtering them in a way to help you with your grief of losing your father? Is that something?
1: Every day, all the time. Oh, Oh, (laughs) all the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I still, that's why I say preponderance of evidence, most likely. mm -hmm. I mean, there could be other answers. I could be doing that. There could be an answer for everything I've seen because also, again, all the research of near-death experiences, um, Mm -hmm. signs I've gotten from my dad. I've delved very deeply into studying mediumship and mm. that I I think that it's very unlikely I'm just interpreting it that way in the beginning I thought that all the time but the amount that comes together
0: mm-hmm. makes
1: that highly unlikely especially when you get into studies on mediumship and actual studies or my own readings that I score and but I can't rule that out. That would be absolutely can't rule that out, especially because everyone else studying this has a bias too. we all have grief, we all, I I think it's incredibly rare, not all of us, but I'd say, almost all of us of the 8 billion people on the planet don't want our consciousness wiped out. Um, And then also, it could be physics could find an answer for everything that I've experienced. And the answer could not be survival of consciousness
0: right so um uh do you know do you know bob ginsburg have you heard of him
1: Oh, he's he's like my mentor he's one of the most oh. he fran ginsburg who sadly passed they are the most important two of the most important people in my life yeah oh
0: well he's he's the first one i i podcasted with he's the first really? interview i did and he's yeah. he was awesome he he sent oh me down this rabbit hole yeah
1: <laughs> um, i found him and fran very early in my research they are, I, I almost consider them like second parents. They are like my rocks and yeah. two of my favorite people in the world. So yes, yeah. yeah, so I know Bob Ginsburg very well. Okay,
0: yeah. Bob <laughs> Bob was super helpful and I occasionally <laughs> email with him after every one of these ones. I sent an email. I'm like, do you know, this person, this person sounds pretty credible. Do you know this yeah. person? They sound a little yeah. crazy, you know? And so yes. Um, yes. he's um, gotten
1: those emails from me, too.
0: Yeah. So the thing that's interesting, though, is is his work in scoring mediums. So are you yes. when you say scoring, are you using his scoring like are you using um, the same score sheet?
1: Pretty much. I mean, I started scoring way before I even found forever family, but it's okay. pretty similar. I think mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't do it. At, maybe as precisely as he does, but I would set up columns where I was like, mm-hmm. yeah. like huge, like amazing. How did they know this? Huge hits. They mm-hmm. also keep aspects of their scoring kind of secret at Forever Family. Um, mm-hmm. But they would have like the, like I would have columns that are like huge hits. No mm-hmm. way they could have known this. Pretty good. Neutral. Mm-hmm. You know, completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And then Mm. future, that's what I did. And I, and so I would go through and I would, you know, see what they got right, see what they got wrong, see how many questions overall, but you know, I didn't, I found it hard to do an actual percentage because it's just, let's say a medium gets 90% wrong, but they get four hits that are so remarkable that. It's unbelievable. And then let's mm-hmm. say they get everything right, but it's a little, you know, it, it's just it, it's a very unmathematical, it, a mat, or it's somewhat semi-mathematical, but not mathematically flawless.
0: Well, right, because if they get four, ratings. they get four big hits that outweigh the twelve that they got wrong. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. There's a little bit of a qualitative uh, view to yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah, I found it so fascinating that they score and they they flunk almost everybody. <laughs> He's like, they flunk. yes, yeah, yes. He, and so <laughs> so you um, tell explain to the listeners uh, who are listening to this what mediumship is.
1: So mediumship, mediums, people often make up mix up psychics and mediums. So, but all psychics are medium. All I just almost screwed that up. All mediums are <laughs> psychic, but not all psychics are mediums. Mm -hmm. So mediumship is when a human communicates and gets information, basically, yeah, communicating with someone who has passed away. Psychic readings are when someone is, that's when they're reading like a living person, like their future, their thoughts. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And yeah, so mediumship, that's communicating Mm -hmm. with people who've passed away.
0: Okay. And you have had, uh, it sounds like you've, you through a medium have had what you called signs from your dad can you talk a little bit about those sure i've had con- i've had
1: communication f- from my dad through mediums and i've gotten signs which are two different things oh, so wow. yes <laughs> so, so i've had multiple medium readings some absolutely blew me away some were pretty good and some were terrible and some were in mm. the you know so i've had mm. all different levels i Mm. also go by the um it's called the white crow theory which is if anyone doesn't i assume most people actually don't know this because i didn't know any of this till i started studying this but william james Mm. studied in i guess the late 1800s studied psychic mediums and ended up studying a medium called lenora leonora piper and Mm. there's beautiful quote i'm not going to quote it perfectly but is he essentially said like if there's one for the, just to show one white crow disproves the theory that all crows are black. So if one medium has been proven to really accurately do this, that means that there's something going on, like a type of survival of consciousness.
0: Hmm. So, hmm. Um,
1: Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: so can you give us a, an example of a communication that you received from your dad?
1: Through a medium or a yeah. sign? Yeah. Oh my God. So many. So I've had some know his name. I've had some no specific memories that we shared. Um, I'll give an example. Like my first medium blew me away. She knew she, my dad had a favorite color. Um, I, 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 in my book, I disguise some things so I can still get verifiable medium readings and
0: keep.
1: Everything yeah, I'm not identical. expecting.
0: I don't. I don't need <laughs> to know your dad's favorite color. That's okay. Yeah.
1: Well, in the <laughs> book, I put it as green, which maybe uh, is true, maybe isn't. So medium uh-huh. we can eliminate. Maybe it's you know. Um. Uh-huh. So she was like, why am I seeing a burst of green? And it wasn't like just, oh, he likes that color. It was like significant. Like he has a room in our apartment, my childhood apartment, mm. that's that color. Or He would always get like green candies. So she's like, I'm just seeing this burst of green. She knew that my grandmother had lost a newborn baby, which I mean, there's no record of that anywhere. Mm. She knew so much about my dad's personality. I mean, it's really... We live in um, a building number 120, and this was just I thought really interesting. She kept saying, and like when my dad was in the hospital, he kept saying, "Oh, I'm I was home this morning. I'm going back to 120." I mean, very not, it's not mm-hmm. saying reality and not saying conscious, which is a whole other conversation. I have new theories on that, but mm-hmm. at the time, I was like, "Oh my god, he's you know hallucinating," and he. And she kept saying, what happened January 20th? Your father keeps showing me something about January 20th. I was like, nothing. I don't know. She's like, I don't know. He showed me a one two zero one twenty, 120 And I was like, holy shit. You know? And then, mm-hmm. you know, she, like, this was very much his personality. She, in the end, kind of laughs. And she's like, I just asked him if he wanted to say he loved you or had any message. Like, he loves you. And she said, eh. And he, that he basically said, eh, she knows what I think of her which is <laughs> exactly what he'd always say. would be like, dad, I love you. And he'd be like, okay. I'd be like, dad, don't you love me? he would be like, you know what I think of you. Come on. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. and I mean, she's one of many readings I've had that are evidential like that. So, mm. you know, wow. yeah. So,
0: so when you, um, when you have a reading like that, does it, uh, it sounds like it gives you hope that there is an afterlife. Yes. Um, and so how, uh, mm-hmm. You know has that helped you in coping with the grief and loss and let me ask you how did you did was it unexpected that your dad was passing or did you know it was coming
1: it was a little of both it's not as unexpected as like a car accident or heart attack but it was pretty quick he had a stroke Mm. and then within three months he was gone like the day he had the stroke he went into the hospital and wasn't himself again Mm. there were some days he was more coherent than others but
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. and how old was he when he passed
1: he had me a lot later in life, so he was in his mid eighties. He was like, oh, wow. like hmm. late fifties when I was born. So, oh wow,
0: okay, wow. So, uh, this this helps you. Does this help you cope with the grief of the loss?
1: Oh my god, more I beyond. I don't even have words. It's it's just it's made the biggest difference
0: hmm.
1: imaginable hmm.
0: for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what has been the most convincing evidence you have seen for an afterlife?
1: Um, So, well, I want to add one little bit about mediumship, and then I will answer that. One part that I think is not as known is, you mentioned, Forever Family and the scoring, certifying mediums using science-based testing. And there's also divisions and departments doing research. There's Dr. Julie Beischel and Mark Bakutze, who have... Founded, co-founded together, the Winbridge Institute. They do up to Quintuple Blinded studies on mediums. Dr. Jeff Tarrant scans mediums' brains and they have unique brain activity. When mm. they're giving medium readings versus psychic readings, those are two different medium, those are two different brain activities, and they have very unique brain activities compared to um when not when they're not giving medium readings. And it's just I mean that's just a small part of the research. Again, I mentioned earlier the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. I know like some of the researchers there, such as Dr. Ed Kelly, have done studies on mediums. So it's just there's very serious researchers studying this. So Hmm.
0: Hmm.
1: I just wanted to add that to mediumship that I think people don't really know about. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't
0: know that it was that that fully researched. That's I mean, that's crazy.
1: It's it's semi fully. There, there, there are very few researchers doing very in-depth, very good research, but there needs to be so much more. There's just no money for it, you know? Right. So, right.
0: I, I imagine it's hard to get grants for stuff like this.
1: Yeah. Incredibly hard. Yes. Right.
0: Yeah. So, um, so now, now let's back to the question. What, what has been the most convincing evidence to you of an afterlife?
1: So for me, and what I find interesting is that everybody who is skeptical and come and has changed their mind, we all say the same thing. It's when all of the evidence comes together in so mm-hmm. many different fields, and so mm-hmm. many different aspects of it from near death experiences to, you know, Dr. Jim Tucker's work to go way back in history and find the research of the Society for Cyclical Research, mm-hmm. mediumship, it's just all of this research comes together with um hi there's my cat um with <laughs> okay. all with all so many diff, so many different people again I mentioned the one white crow medium but I there's like I mean again like only a tiny tiny percent of mediums past forever family or have shown to be highly accurate but there's still a lot of them I mean uh-huh. out of the 8 billion people on earth maybe you know even if there's like a thousand and there seems to be probably more than that that are highly accurate that's
0: just well and the thing and and if you look at it if you look at it from you know if there are people out there who are religious who are skeptical about this i can tell you that you know in the judeo-christian faith you know out of eight billion people there were 12 apostles you know what i mean like you know (laughs) so it's like we believe in one god there's usually like a prophet you know what i mean which So I mean, yeah, the the numbers are few of people who can who can do this. So it would make sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they so many do it accurately. And it's just all of it coming together, like mentioning the anecdotal stories of people, you know, have near death experiences, some verified, some not, but even some of the non-verified ones parallel some of the others. And it's just it's so much research and a history of it and different again, different areas, mediumship near-death yeah. experiences, out-of-body experiences, it's signs from the other side that people get. It just becomes. when You just start to put it all together and the amount of people that see it and the amount of smart people in general when researchers delve into this, and I can't say 100%, there's never 100% anything, most tend to conclude that either there's an afterlife or that there's something inexplicable going on, that the laws of physics are different. Mm-hmm. And the answer is not always it, it, I have yet to hear anyone who really delved in who still thinks it's fraud.
0: Mm, interesting. Yeah. So real quick, going back to mediums, you mentioned you had some like you kind of go in skeptical and, you know, you've had some that have been really good. Some that have been really bad. Um, do you do anything to kind of like make sure that they're not, you know, taking advantage of you or faking you?
1: You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. I do a lot. Um, I'll tell like the normal things I do. And then you mentioned Bob Ginsburg, probably one of his and forever family's favorite story. I mean, because I take it to an extreme. So Mm -hmm. getting a reading, I give a fake name. I book through a VPN virtual private network in case they have some technology. Um Mm -hmm. I have a friend, not even a family member, pay if I have to pay in advance um google voice number um some have been in person so i can't say they maybe i don't know haven't snapped a picture of me secretly and googled it but i mean i'm watching them i can't even begin to fathom how they could do that without my seeing right. them maybe right. they have an assistant with a camera like well who's googling and feeding them in an earpiece. but i kind of have peeked around for earpieces and have yet to see any um
0: that's <laughs> that, that seems like it would be a lot of work to defraud somebody. Yeah. And they like don't would... they
1: don't make enough money. You know, right. I mean that's what I also say. If and then some have been on the phone where they can't even see me, and again through a Google Voice number, some have been on Zoom, you know, oh. and but I mean I hide my identity as much as possible. Like one of Bob's favorite stories is there's this medium, Janet Mayer, who's wonderful. And this was early on. I didn't know her. And she asks you to send in a paper check of print out a piece of paper so you know i mean i don't have paper checks but i didn't even get one from like my mom i went and got like uh, uh like a money order without my identity on it i filled out the paper you know but i anytime i had to touch the paper and the envelope i wore rubber gloves because i'm like i oh, don't know maybe she has a fingerprint machine <laughs> so you're, you're that like, like,
0: <laughs> you are doing everything you can to make sure that there's yeah. like no shot
1: that's funny and that's become kind of a joke in forever family they're like wait you wore rubber gloves I was like I thought that'd be like a normal smart research thing to do but they're like that is the craziest <laughs> like most extreme thing I've ever heard
0: so yeah I was be, gonna um, say that was that's pretty extreme it's like yeah. you're just trying to make sure like they can't even get my fingerprints you know what I mean like, exactly it's just... <laughs> I mean you don't know
1: right if yeah. like I started now instead of in 2015 with like facial recognition technology I'd probably wear like a huge facial mask now <laughs> like, I don't want to
0: see my face man so so you um you you know through your re- your research you believe that well i shouldn't say you believe you 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 think the, the proponent shows something of an afterlife have you kind of pieced together your own personal view of what that afterlife might look like Oof.
1: I mean, that's let so me, hard let me, to before, say. Bef-
0: before you go into that, let me tell you why I'm, I'm thinking this. Because one of the things sure. that I find so fascinating about a lot of these um, near-death experiences is the connection with family, like mm-hmm. that, that there's a connection with family after, after death, right? That somehow even that these bonds that we create somehow carry over. And so I'm just curious, and and, and part of the reason why you even proceeded with this is because your dad, and you're getting these signs from your dad. So what have you kind of viewed, what kind of, have you been able to piece together as what an afterlife looks like?
1: Oof, and this is very, very, very speculative. Mm -hmm. So I have to take what the people who have had near-death experiences say, because They've actually been there more than anyone on earth has. And they say it's just filled with love and they see their loved ones and it's a place of learning and understanding. I have to add a little bit of my own personality to that, that that seems unrealistic that it would only be love there. So I have to say Mm. they've only died for a very short period of time. So Mm. it's like, think when you've been away on a vacation, haven't seen people in a long time, you go home and you see everyone, you just feel filled with love. And you're like, oh, so much love. Then life continues as normal. So I'm, I'm assuming there's so many other tiers and dimensions to it that we can't understand. It seems time moves differently. I don't think we can understand that. People say they see colors. So experientially, I have a hard time understanding. It seems like there's sort of a layer that's closer to our experience here, but isn't as physical. And then there's layers i would guess i would guess there's lots of different dimensions and states of consciousness probably a variety of physical forms of consciousness a variety of non-physical and if i could guess because one of the main questions and i had this early on is that people ask is so if my loved one reincarnated how could, can mediums still communicate with them and mediums are like it seems like we always can it seems like you know time moves differently over there so if i could guess how that works and maybe there's even layers like in a trillion years after the big crunch where you know this there's a big
0: crunch the big crunch what is that
1: so you know the big bang like the big bang is like the start of our universe the big crunch is when it's going to implode and just become smaller and smaller Uh, and the death of our universe um okay Okay. and our planet's gonna be dead way before then because our sun's gonna go out i mean most likely Hmm. who knows what our technology can create but that that's how it seems, mm-hmm. and so th- there could be whole other states of like consciousness beyond that, like other. I, I don't even know. I mean, when you get past that, but taking the most immediate, m- like the afterlife that equates our current dimension and t- reasonable time frame, and it seems, if I could guess, that like our consciousness, the source of its non-local, like a type of quantum particle. It downloads a quantum entangles with our brains to create a human experience. And then this human experience goes back into this non-local consciousness of ours. And it becomes one of our memories, just like yesterday, becomes part of us today. And then that source consciousness adds us to one of our lives, one of parts of us, like adds this human experience to a part of who we are, just like, yeah, like, first grade and college and our first jobs becomes a part of who we are, That this human experience becomes a part of like what our non-local like sources, is, which is a compilation of all our lives. And then, you know, go into the other life. And, and that's a part of how I think the afterlife is experientially. I just, I can't really picture it. Like I have to believe near death experiencers. They say it feels realer than real and they can have see things. They can visually perceive information 360 degrees instead of the tiny little portion we can. It seems like our brain's a type of filter to have a very focused experience of sorts.
0: Yeah. And so, with that though, it's like you, I'm just as you're talking about this, I think to myself, I'm like, okay, so if this is true, if we are some sort of non, non like specific you know non-local consciousness and that our brain just downloads with this consciousness Mm -hmm. creating a human experience and then we're gone and we go away and we do it again like what what is reality is reality the consciousness is this the reality what is what is real are Mm -hmm. we just part of a simulation like this is a video game where we're avatars for you know what Mm -hmm. we're doing it's just an interesting uh i don't know you know it's it's just kind of crazy to to think all this
1: exactly and i think that seems to be there's part of it that we just we can't understand just like a three-dimensional being couldn't understand. I mean, sorry, a two-dimensional being could not understand a- our three-dimensional existence. A three-dimensional being, we can't understand a four-dimensional mm-hmm.
0: existence.
1: And mm-hmm. I just think there's aspects. And we don't know for sure. I mean, to say we actually know about the whole experience of consciousness, the creation of our universe. I mean, maybe we are in a simulation. Some smart people think that. Yeah. like a type of computer simulation. Maybe where I, I don't know.
0: Yeah. That's interesting, man. Who, who, who knows now? Let me ask you. So you, you we, we talk a lot about these. Uh, it seems like most near death experiences tend to be this loving experience, but I had um, uh, someone on who had a hellish experience, a yes. bad experience. So you heard some of those and what do you think of yes. those?
1: So this is my complete speculation. I think, again, like there's this people say, oh, the other side is nothing but love and beauty. I don't I would find that hard to believe because I think things are more multidimensional complex than that. Like, Mm -hmm. I would think but I don't think that means you're that it's this horrible, torturous experience. I even if this one near death experience might be hellacious again they didn't fully die it's a near-death experience so I kind of equate that with transformative experiences have many layers and I'm talking about just very basic human transformative experiences let's say you're going on a two-month trip to like Thailand I actually did that Mm. maybe you have like the worst plane ride there maybe it's like super turbulence and you're terrified and like you get there and they lose your luggage and it's storming and you're really lonely and you got there like you were supposed to arrive and meet a group for like a program and you accidentally got there two days early and so you're by yourself and like You forgot your phone charger adapter so you can't charge your phone and you can't reach your family. And just like everything really bad and you're really scared and you get to the hotel and it's like the worst place ever. And that's really horrible. Horrible. And you're lonely and scared and things are changing. And maybe it's just not so bad, but you're suddenly really, really homesick. Like when I think when I first went to sleepaway camp, I spent the whole first week in agony crying I got past my homesickness. Camp was one of the best experiences of my childhood. Mm -hmm. I would say Thailand. I mean, it wasn't that bad when I arrived. I felt a little (laughs) suddenly lonely, a little spooky. but, But, you know, nevertheless, like, I went on and had, like, one of the best times. And some days were also really, really, really shitty. Same with my summer camp that I loved. And so I just find it hard to think you are permanently stuck in this Horrible thing. It's probably just like a piece of it. Maybe you took a wrong turn, and I think maybe similar to the human experience, like you don't want to get you. It's we have so much more choice to get out of a hellacious experience than we realize. Like you know, like I look back, I'll just give it slightly personal. Like my school was horrible as a child like it's so bad so bad so bad now looking back my mom and i have been talking about it and she was like we had such a misconception that we should have kept you there like what so i think you know it's sort of the same thing like i don't have good things to say about my school it was really traumatic and but we could have just pulled me out and switched me and mm. i think there probably other forms of consciousness are pretty similar to that mm. and
0: Hmm. you know so so what do you think I mean do you have any idea I mean I know this is all speculation but so what's the purpose of all of it oh
1: god I don't even have any idea (laughs) (laughs) that's that's what
0: I'm wondering it's like what is
1: he or the purpose of having consciousness and
0: yeah well and that's the thing like I I think maybe a broader question or maybe more pointed maybe a more pointed question is if it's not God that's creating this I mean I, I think of God as whatever the creator is Okay. Okay. so if it's not created by anybody, where did it come from and why? You know,
1: I always wonder what if there isn't a why, like what if just consciousness evolved and now we want to make meaning like, okay, so let's say there's non-local consciousness. People say that the earth was created as a type of school. I sometimes wonder if it's like. This is one theory I had. It's just so out there. Zero, zero evidence. It's just one theory I thought was interesting. So, like, you look at people that are really destructive here and really shitty. And most of us, like, myself included, like, Harvey Weinstein, again, I was like, fuck him. And, like, what a horrible person. And I just want to eviscerate him and throw his ass in jail and have his life out. And there's, that's a really normal human reaction. But you take, let's take a person like him and let's say, I'm sure he didn't, there was like a lot of stuff leading up to him behaving so terribly. Mm-hmm. And let's even take another case where I know the bad things that happened of another like Hollywood rapist, like Roman Polanski. <laughs> and we know enough of his suffering, suffering that I feel actually an empathy for him. I feel deep empathy for the girl he raped. She was 13. I think I believe like mm-hmm, apologies if mm-hmm. I have any of the facts wrong, but if you know his life, he was a Holocaust survivor. His parents, his whole family perished in the Holocaust. Again, I'm not saying it's at all at all, all okay, but this is building up to my point that he, so I'm not saying it's at all okay. They raped someone, but this is, but nevertheless, you can also have empathy for why he turned to such a dark side. Cause he lost his whole family in the Holocaust. He finally like started to heal because he got married And his wife was pregnant and she ended up being a victim of a serial killer while he was out of town one night his wife Mm -hmm. was murdered and
0: by charles manson
1: (laughs) charles manson okay i didn't remember which serial killer
0: by charles manson like one of the most prolific serial killers ever yeah
1: oh my and like yeah and just the horrible pain and luck of that so I would I be any better a human if that was my had been my life experience if I have no idea. So he just was filled with this like resentment and hatred of life and humanity and wanted revenge on the world. And you know what? I can't blame him. I also think he needs to pay the price for what he did to that girl. So now imagine if he hadn't experienced that. And so it's, and you take someone, like take a child, like probably Harvey Weinstein had a horrible childhood. I don't know, or some shit happened and he, or, you know, who knows what, but like, let's say very early on, people saw like some form of his suffering and were like, let's rehabilitate you or people without the opportunities that Harvey Weinstein had. Like when you hear like a lot of prison documentaries, it's people, almost all prisoners like grew up in poverty again, almost, and had like abuse in childhood and just have a level of pain. They don't know how to exist. So I almost think, and going to prison overall is not rehabilitative, but like getting Mm -hmm. love and engagement and like care and healing. And most crimes would probably be prevented if people noticed pain in children. So there seems to be, if I could guess, the earth is almost like a type of filter. Like let's say there's like really sort of dark uh you know they give dark matter but like sort of like empty cruel like type of conscious energy in the universe and a really loving one it's maybe almost a filter to like heal that dark sort of Hmm. painful energy saying that like are we also experienced on local consciousness and this might be a solution to sort of transform that it's like a filter getting it to like transform into a loving more loving happy energy
0: well that's yeah that's interesting yeah, I, I, I don't know.
1: Theory. I don't yeah, know.
0: yeah. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I had um, uh, one more question I had about sure. experiences. Do you? I've talked to a lot of different people, and do you know where this afterlife is? Like, for example, I had a guy named Mark Hunter Brooks on. I don't know if you know. Who okay. He was, and, no. And he he was uh, he was a little he was he was he was interesting, um, yeah. but he. He had this idea of it being, if you change reality to like a wave-based reality, he said it'd be like turning a dial and the afterlife would just be all around us, but it's just turning a dial to a different frequency and then we're all there. Yes. Do you, do you think that, that like the afterlife is all around us? Do you think it's somewhere else? Do you, do you think it's just another like, another dimension or another reality within? How do, you, do What have you seen in your research that it seems to be like?
1: It seems to be a type of other dimension that Mm. almost i would say similar like you turn a dial and it's just another literal dimension around us Mm. another frequency and again like Mm. sometimes our consciousness is in a physical being sometimes it's in a non-physical and these are all different frequencies that we're tuning into at different times and a human body tunes into a specific dimension and frequency so I, i think this is a pretty i would guess fairly accurate description that it's some form of different wavelengths but i also think there's probably other lives we live in other planets and other solar systems that are also physical that are also within mm. our dimension that would be mm. my guess mm. and then other states of consciousness that are in other dimensions
0: i just watched my 10 year old playing video games and i watch oh. them so real and i'm just like mm-hmm. i hope that there's not some 10 year old that's just i'm like some avatar for some 10 year old off in the like making me do all mm. these things and i was like you oh, can we- come up with something better uh. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that is it. I'm
1: like, oh, that could be it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, Liz, let me ask you, where can I notice you have a book there, you know, that you've written. Tell us about your book.
1: Yes. So my book describes my story. My book is called WTF Just Happened. A sciencey skeptic explores grief, healing and evidence of the afterlife. I also have a podcast also called WTF Just Happened all about the afterlife, no woo. And so my book tells the story of kind of a bit of what we were talking about here from when my dad first got sick and how I assumed that there was like zero chance of an afterlife all the way to, you know, all the stuff that initially changed my mind as well as like kind of just talking about the raw grief of those days. And it ends in, I believe about, 2018. And then I have a second book I'm working on now that I'll be publishing in a few months about that picks up like 2018 to like 20, probably 21. So yeah, and this just talks about like Dr. Jim Tucker, it talks about my first medium reading, it talks about some fraudulent medium readings I mm-hmm. had and discovered it talks about getting to meet Bob Ginsburg and his wife, who, as I mentioned, sadly passed away, Fran Ginsberg, who became my number one person. It talks about kind of getting to first meet mediums as real people. And I'm like trying to figure out the ways they're cheating and, yeah. you know, and just yeah. other people along the way that I met that really helped build up the evidence and change my mind.
0: And your podcast, do you have guests on and, and talk about this with them or is it more just you, you're speaking or both?
1: I have guests on, I don't speak okay. that much on it. Yeah. Oh, I have okay. guests. Uh, basically it's people along the way have helped me think they most likely is an afterlife. Awesome. A lot of the people who influenced me and, you
0: awesome.
1: know, new people that I learn about them, like, wow, your research is fascinating. And
0: Yeah. You no, know, it really <laughs> is. It's, it's interesting considering where you're, you come from coming from a skeptic and atheist background to mm-hmm. coming to this. It's very interesting. Um, the I ask everybody three Uh, three questions that I want to ask you Uh, first, what would you say? uh, These are just more questions about you. Really? What would you say is your biggest success in life?
1: Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, I, I like to think that life is filled with like little daily successes. I'm pretty proud. I wrote a book. I think being open and changing your mind is a really big deal. I think very few people, really do that so I would say being like open to changing my mind and having changed it is something I feel pretty proud of Mm. and hopefully my book has helped some people and yeah I guess helping get Harvey Weinstein in jail I have to claim that as a success yeah (laughs) that's
0: yeah yeah, that's great no I I think it's really great. I think yeah I think I think It's I think it's remarkable that you bring up when we're talking about success being open minded, because I think, you know, I I heard it described one time as uh, a a open mind, a closed minded person is somebody who takes information and filters it through what they already know. An open minded person is open to the idea that maybe they're wrong and i love the fact that everything that you've been saying here you've acknowledged that you may be right but you also may be wrong and there's so many people out there that don't do that like you said there are people i i know them religious people who nope, this is the way and there is no other way and if you're not doing it my way you're doing it wrong and it even happens in between like we as i see this in my own church within the mormon faith where there's two mormons there and one's practicing it this way and the other one's practicing it this way and the person acting practicing it this way even though there's no reference for it they believe that they're they're doing it the right way and it doesn't make any sense right so i think the fact that you're willing to look at things and and progress and and uh, learn is is really remarkable so i, I think that's right. now Thank the next you. now here's the next question that might be even harder what would you say is your biggest failure and what did you learn from it
1: and again i sort of go through that i think every day is filled with many little failures as well as many little successes. Um, that's a hard one just because I I sort of don't believe in failure. I sort of think everything's a learn, learning experience. But I think, you mm-hmm. know, I make, like I feel every day, every day I make multiple mistakes trying to figure out my business, trying to put things together, we even go to my childhood. Like I said, my school was terrible. I'd say maybe more of a regret. Then a failure Mm -hmm. is, I think, just not like any time I sort of didn't go with my heart and didn't stick up for myself and what I really Mm -hmm. want and like believed the label or what I was supposed to do over myself, which I think was like a core, like almost like type of failure of my childhood and staying in schools that had the right labels that every cell of my body knew was wrong for me. Mm -hmm. And then I think I've, I would say I've had multiple failures along my life where I did that. And Mm -hmm. that has been like a theme of failures I've probably needed to fix. Well,
0: we all, we all have our own, our -hmm. our own weaknesses that we're working on multiple times, but you, you, uh, real quick and I know, you know, uh, I know we're kind of coming towards the end, but you keep referencing your, you keep referencing your, your school as being bad. What was bad about it? Were you you bullied?
1: Some, so I have two, I, both schools were actually really wrong for me and I'll go, yeah, it's, it's, And I can run a little over an hour and a half if you need me to. That's fine. Okay. Um, Yeah. So they were New York private schools. They were incredibly, yes, they were very mean, sort of bullying. Very, very, very academic. I'm more like a creative kid. I was literally studying so much. I felt I had to give up at all, everything I'm actually interested in. So, I mean, they were both terrible in different ways. I'll start with my elementary school. It was very, very authoritarian. It was supposed to be a more creative private school, and it was not. It was incredibly high pressure, um, very, very rule-based, very, like, everyone had to wear a uniform, very uncreative, very structured, very, like, gray and sort of deadened. And there was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of cruelty and just kind of giving up every part of yourself to kind of fit this very strict mold Hmm. high school was incredibly i almost describe it as like you know some kids are like trained as professional actors or artists or ballerinas it was like that in the form of intense academics also Hmm. private very like very snobby. And I felt like I not only was I exhausted, because I'm not an academic person, like, I don't think I'm stupid by any means. But there are people that just thrive as specialized academics. And I'm more of like artistic and a little more entrepreneurial. And -hmm. so it was like, basically sleeping five hours a night to give up both of these schools, I feel like I had to give up every single interest I had Mm
0: -hmm. to focus
1: on these intense academics that I had literally zero interest in. And maybe, Mm. like, two of the classes, it would have been really interesting to do, like, two of them. But to dedicate my whole life to this thing that I found absolutely uninteresting. All sort of Mm. for this, like, label of false promise. Like, you go to the best private schools. You, like, have this dream life. Almost like they were slightly cult-like, I think. Mm. You know? So, Well,
0: you know, the thing that's interesting about that is... uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I, as an attorney, um, I had a vision and I'll just, I'll share this with you because I, I think that they're, yeah. I've, I've had this, I've had this come up a couple of times uh, recently is, you know, when they think about that, what they're really telling your, you know, telling your parents is you put them here, they're going to go to the best, if they go to the best private school, they'll go to the best colleges, they'll get the best jobs. And then they'll be happy because they'll be financially secure and they'll have all these things and it'll be wonderful. The thing is, is that was kind of a view I had now. I love being an attorney i really enjoy my life my life Mm -hmm. but one of the things that i found so interesting is with the success came financial success it didn't i to my surprise because my my childhood very different like my parents not very financially secure there was a lot of strife around finances so i just viewed Mm -hmm. if i have all the money i won't have any problems right and then i had and then i got a lot of money and then i was like there's the problems are still there like I no I'm no happier with this amount of money than I was with that amount of money And so I think I tell my kids because I have a couple of them that are very artistic and they've said to me in fact a, a podcast I'm gonna drop soon is my 14 year old daughter and I bought a, I did my 75th podcast with her and I she's she, yeah and she's a she's a um, she's a very artistic type and she's like, well I don't think I can make a lot of money and I'm like, hey, go for it. If it makes your heart sing, like you got to pay, you got to live within your means, but you know, it, it, you know, whether you're living in a 5,000 square foot house or a thousand, thousand square foot apartment, if you're doing what you love, you have a dream life, you know? Yeah. And so, so uh, um, last question. Oh, I just uh, want to
1: add one thing that plenty oh, of artists make ahead. a lot of money. And I actually feel I make less money because school inhibited so much of my growing my talents that I'm changing it. But I would think mm-hmm. I'd be making a lot more money if I'd gone to different schools. So I actually feel uh, it inhibited my financial success as well as other successes.
0: Well, that's, yeah, that, that's a great one. So, that's a great yeah, point. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, last question though, I want to ask, I ask everybody. So eventually you're going to pass on and you're going to go yes. to an afterlife hopefully. And uh, um, so uh, when that happens, there will be a funeral, possibly, and a eulogy. What would you hope that somebody would say, the one thing you hope someone says about you in your eulogy?
1: I got one thing. I hope just, like, I guess that was a lot of fun and that I was a good person. And I guess that it's hard to say one thing and that I, like, really lived my life authentically, kind of self-actualized, following who I really wanted to be. And that... Um, maybe also I like fought for the underdog and stuck up for people and
0: yeah well I can tell you're definitely very authentic so Thank I you. I think that uh it's great so people who want to follow Liz go to the WTF just happened podcast and check out her book is it like an Amazon can you get it on Amazon and all that you can
1: get it on Amazon and you can link to Amazon and my podcast on my website which is WTFjusthappened.net.
0: awesome okay well, for everybody who's listened, uh, subscribe to the podcast. we got a lot more fun stuff coming up as well. Uh, we have all sorts of different topics coming. And uh, thanks for listening. And Liz, thanks for giving me the time and, and uh, sharing uh, your, your story and your uh, research with me.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. All right.